Good Morning Liberty. Well, what is up, all of our Liberty-loving friends? This is another fantastic episode of the Good Morning Liberty podcast. My name is Nate Thurston, and Charlie is not here today, but I'm being joined by a very special guest, Mr. Brad Palumbo. How you doing? Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Now, if you guys don't know, we did do another episode with Brad previously, by the way, but he is the opinion editor at Foundation for Economic education, one of our favorite websites in the whole world, and also has its own podcast called Breaking Boundaries, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Man, there's there's never any shortage of things to talk about if you're talking politics all the time. Oh, yeah, uh, especially uh, with Trump. And then now, I thought it would slow down under Biden, Kamala, and the, but Literally, no, it's as breakneck as ever. So there's no shortage of stories and policies for me to be writing about. And I'm lucky enough to get paid to do that for a living. Yeah, I mean, do you ever wish that you didn't have a reason to have to do that all the time? Like we always talk about, we wish we could talk ourselves out of a job, but it doesn't seem like that's the trend we're going in. Yeah, so sometimes I wish that it would be a little uh, more spread out. Like sometimes three insane news stories will happen on one day and then the next day nothing will happen. And it's like, well, I can't write all about all of them. And then the next day I feel like I have barely anything to write about. Yeah. But I, I enjoy the the pacing of it and getting to cover the stuff and keep up with it. But I do wish sometimes it didn't all happen at once. Yeah, um, a couple things I specifically wanted to ask you about today, and um, since we we talked a little bit about what's going on with the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, I know that they've they've paused it. I don't think it's been just just banned or anything like that yet, but they're pausing it. And we tend to think that that's kind of a crazy idea. <laughs> what do you, just if you go by the statistics on it, it doesn't seem like the best move that I've ever seen. <laughs> what what do you think about that? Yeah, no, I'm with you. Uh, I think the whole situation is kind of nuts. The FDA put a pause on it, um, which then most states and localities canceled it, their distribution of it. And it could only last a couple of weeks, right? It might not be permanent. It's probably not going to be permanent, Uh, but it is a big deal. It's going to slow down the vaccines and it's telling people who want one, no, the government's saying you can't choose that. You can't do that. Um, And that's something I'm opposed to just kind of as a rule. I don't think it should be up to FDA bureaucrats whether or not I can try a vaccine uh, that my doctor thinks I should take and I want to take. But also, it's just even from their perspective, the bureaucrat perspective, it doesn't make any sense. you got six reported blood clotting cases out of 6.8 million vaccines given out. It's it's one in a million. The chances of, of getting a blood clot are less than the chances of being struck by lightning in your lifetime. Medications like birth control give you one in 10,000 people get a blood clot and and yet they're sold uh, or distributed every day. Well, the, you know, you were saying this might only last two or three weeks, but I think the, the damage to the idea of this specific vaccine is probably going to be, is going to last a lot longer than that. You know, you're going to have a lot of people that are going to be dissuaded from getting it because of this move. And that's going to have repercussions, even if they decide next week that it's going to be okay. Obviously, this is going to be a thing now that that everyone's going to be worried about. They even have um, a YouGov survey out showing that public uh, confidence in the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is cratered, which really stinks because the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is actually supposed to be the normie vaccine. The Moderna and Pfizer vaccines are use new mRNA technology that's, that's pretty groundbreaking and new. And I personally am not bothered by it at all, but some people are uneasy about it. Johnson and Johnson uses the old school vaccine technology. So it was supposed to be the one that they thought they were going to be able to get people who were kind of vaccine hesitant to still take. Now, all of a sudden, they've they've damaged the credibility of this. So I guess I, I'm just mind boggled at people who who look at the last year. They look at Dr. Fauci. They look at the FDA and the CDC and they say, wow, we really need more government. I think this whole COVID uh, debacle to date has just been a comedy of government errors after government errors. And really, I think few people have, have lost and few institutions have lost more credibility than the CDC and the FDA and the public health bureaucracy, because they just seem incompetent and detached from the reality of what Americans care about. The only thing that we could pinpoint that could be a positive from this would be uh, I've seen people on both sides of the aisle, even people on the left, 
uh, talking about how bad of a move this was from the FDA. And I, my hope would be that it sheds light on some of the incentive structure that's inside of the FDA. You know, that they, they tend towards this, what they said a quote, it was an overabundance of caution, right? So they're, so they're going to pause this. That's, that's pretty much what they do all the time. We don't know how many life-saving medications we could have. And then they let all these other medications go all the time that obviously have a lot worse effects uh, than this vaccine so far. And I don't, do you think, could we, could we say there could be a positive thing? Are people going to pick up on this? Look, I hope so. I, but I will say there are a lot of issues where people on the left or people on the right suddenly see the government isn't working or is broken. And then yet they have this disconnect where they don't apply it to other situations. So the same Republicans that say gun control won't work think the drug tro- drug war will, uh, right? Yeah. The same uh, dem- Democrats have these same kind of inconsistencies about all sorts of things. Um, but I guess then I, I do I do wish people could take a, a lesson from this because the FDA is broken by its very design, by its very structure. Just look, I, I'm an economics focused reporter and writer, so. In economics, everything goes back to incentives to understand human behavior. And the incentives that face the FDA bureaucracy are very clear and they're very skewed away from facts and and kind of a neutral cost benefit towards caution. Because if the the FDA lets out a, a medication that hurts someone, that cost will be directly blamed on them and they'll get the PR backlash. But if they never allow a potentially life-saving medication to go to market, the unseen benefits are never noticed and they're never blamed for it. So good policy requires weighing the costs and the benefits neutrally, but the FDA is super skewed by its very design to be overcautious. And in something like this, honestly, people who could have taken the, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine over the next few weeks and won't as a result of this, might die. Some people, by far more people will die as a result of this than uh, blood clots. Yeah, that's, we talked a little bit about this on our, on our podcast uh, the day before yesterday, but that you can do the numbers on this one pretty easily and we can just remove all of the, any kind of politics in discussing the numbers with COVID and doubt or anything like that. But if you just go by the statistics on the amount of people that that get COVID and that die from it and the amount of people that take this vaccine and get a blood clot from it, uh, there's a pretty easy cost-benefit analysis to do on this. It's not that hard to do, but but they don't need to do that. (laughs) It's also a question of who should be making the cost-benefit analysis. You know who knows my costs and benefits pretty well? Me. (laughs) You know who doesn't know my costs and benefits pretty well? the FDA, right? So for some people, um, say that you are a young woman, which is all the cases where the blood clots are as young females, um, who is at no risk of COVID, statistically almost no risk, 25-year-old woman, but would be at some very tiny risk of blood clots. Your cost-benefit analysis is, okay, maybe I won't take the vaccine, right? But the FDA deciding that for you doesn't help. And, And someone like me, I'm a man, uh, there's, the blood clotting is only happening in women. Um, my cost-benefit analysis is very clear. I'm better off taking the vaccine than not. I know that, but the FDA wants a one-size-fits-all rule because they think you're too stupid to decide for yourself. And that's the problem because this isn't just a COVID thing. It isn't just a vaccine thing. They do this with drug approval processes every day. They do this with environmental regulations, consumer regulations, labor law. It ultimately is a question of bureaucracy or individual decision making. Yeah, we've done uh, you. I don't know if we could really have a number, but the FDA gets credit if they remove a medication from the market. And that medication, say, in Europe somewhere ended up ended up harming a lot of people, but they kept it off the market. They get that credit. But what we don't have is the number of the amount of people who could have been saved from medications that the FDA would not allow onto the market. There's, a, there's always this unseen problem. We don't have that number, but I would imagine that's pretty high. Yeah, this is what Friedrich Hayek, you know, Nobel Prize winning economist, 
Um, he, he talked about this a lot. Actually, I'm sorry. This was Bastiat, the seen versus unseen. And good policymaking, good economics accounts for not just the obvious, immediate, seen consequences, but also the second order and unseen uh, effects. Because a lot of bad policies, whether it's tariffs or overcautious FDA policies, they find one very tangible benefit or harm that they can stop or block, and they just don't see or choose to ignore all this vastly dispersed harm and cost that actually outweighs the benefit, but the benefits are really tangible that they can point to and get credit for. That might be a recipe for good politics or good promotion in the government bureaucracy, but it's not a recipe for actually good policymaking. Well, and it becomes, so if your job is to make sure that someone doesn't die from a medication then you can pretty easily achieve your goal by not allowing the medication to go onto the market. Like there's your final endpoint is we just want to allow and we stop people from dying from the medication. Is it if they created the bureau to make sure that no one died, no one died in car accidents. The final end ban result cars. of that ban cars, just take them off the market. But we do that cost-benefit analysis. We know that cars can be dangerous. We know it's dangerous to drive on the road. And we choose to do that, and we, and we act accordingly. But when your job is to make sure that people aren't going to die from a medication, you don't have to do the other part of the analysis, which is how many people are going to die from the illness. It's how many people are going to die from the medication, and I can stop this from happening. It sounds like a what we did with COVID in general, really, when it comes to shutting down economies all across the world. You can do that analysis. How do we make sure no one dies from COVID? That's our job. That's a win right there. It does Okay, uh, starvation, uh, economic depression, all that. That's all secondary in nature. That doesn't matter, right? Yeah, look, I just was reading about this today, but the latest data show... Um, a, a record level of drug overdoses in the year that ended it during the pandemic, uh, that a huge increase in, in months up through September 2020, according to the data that we just got um, over the year before. So there's tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, if you, hundreds of thousands by far, if you count suicides and everything, but just in, in terms of drug overdoses, tens and tens of thousands of people died deaths of despair from drug overdoses, probably largely attributable, not every case, but in many cases to the economic and social and mental health and, uh, and physiological consequences of lockdowns and social distancing and isolation. Um, but someone like Dr. Fauci, he, he's just saying lock everything down because he's just thinking about COVID. That's his, that's his only mandate, I suppose, though I would think, I, I think people should should at least try to account for other factors. Um, but the lockdown kind of hawks and, and the COVID people who really wanted us to do this, they were they had tunnel vision. And good policymaking never comes out of tunnel, tunnel vision. That's how you end up with really dysfunctional results where you can say, haha, we, we reduced COVID deaths, though they didn't even really do that with lockdowns. Uh, but that's a whole nother topic. <laughs> uh, but it's no good. Just if your goal should be to mitigate deaths not COVID deaths. Yeah. And that's a very important distinction. It's, it's as if only, only the COVID deaths matter. And the other ones, we're not trying to stop the total number of deaths. It's just COVID deaths because that's our job. That's what our committee says we're supposed to do, or that's what my job title says I'm supposed to do. And I, it's almost like we shouldn't let just some high up people at the top organize an entire society or economy. <laughs> no, we just need the right people. <laughs> there you then go. it will work. Yeah, that's what it would be. The conversation about the vaccine is really interesting to me because, uh, you know, us having a more libertarian podcast, I, we're obviously, we're against mandated vaccination. Um, we're against mandated vaccine passports, things like that, of course. But then also we're talking about how people should be free to take this vaccine if they want to, if they can do the, if they can do the cost benefit, you should be allowed to take that. So you can both argue that we don't need it to be mandatory for people, but people need to be allowed to do it if they want to. Yeah. on the whole vaccine thing, I found myself like I'm kind of uh, just standing in a crowd yelling and everyone's just running by me in opposite directions. Cause it's like one side, uh, well, there's so many sides to it, but one side is like, these vaccines are so good that they need to be forcibly mandated. 
They're so effective that no one will take them unless we force them, which is bizarre <laughs> and wrong. Yeah. Uh, and then the other side is, is no, uh, you don't need to force them, but also we're going to use the government to ban people from self-selecting uh, to only be around vaccinated people. And then there's other people who are saying they don't work and they shouldn't be allowed at all. And we need to block them with the FDA because of <laughs> overcaution or the whole thing's a damn mess, but it really comes down to something simple for me. And that's just that, that individuals should be allowed to make their own decisions because they know their own costs and benefits the best. And it is complicated with a pandemic, right? Like, because there's this idea of externalities imposing costs on others, which in true cases of externalities can be a valid justification, in my view, for government action. But I don't really get that as applied to vaccines, because if you take the vaccine, or I actually just took my first shot today, so it'll need a couple of weeks, but say I'm fully vaccinated for, for argument's sake, then I'm protected, even if you choose not to. If you and I were in person for this podcast, we're over Zoom, right? But say we're in person. If I'm vaccinated and you choose not to, you're not endangering me. The vaccine protects me. That's the point of the vaccine. So I don't get the, any sort of externality argument here that would even remotely justify compulsion or passports or any of this stuff. Well, actually doing what, what they continue to do is undermine the reason for getting the vaccine in the first place, which is saying that even vaccinated people shouldn't be around unvaccinated people. I can't wrap my mind around that. What the point of the vaccine is if it can't protect you from being around someone who has a very small chance that they could be carrying something that you're vaccinated against. <laughs> it makes no sense. Some of these public health people like Fauci and uh, they're basically anti-vax at this point, in effect, <laughs> not in their attentions, but they're going around saying, wear your double mask, even if you're vaccinated, you can still get COVID if you're vaccinated. You could still infect other people. All of this stuff is factually wrong. Like every study we have, we don't obviously have comprehensive years of data, but they all show the opposite. Vaccinated people don't really get COVID, rare exceptions. They're 95% plus effective. They don't spread COVID with very rare exceptions. Uh, so it's like you should be telling people when you have your second shot and you wait two weeks, you can light your mask on fire and run out into the world and hug some homeless people. And instead they're doing the opposite. And it's like, if you're someone, we need a lot of people, not just elderly or the really vulnerable to get vaccinated in order to eradicate the viruses from spreading herd immunity. So that requires people who, like me, who are not particularly at risk from COVID to still take the vaccine. But if you take away any incentive, a lot of young people or people who aren't in danger from it won't. So I don't know what these, these people these hawks and alarmists are on about. I don't know what their true intentions are, but what they're doing in effect is so deeply counterproductive and honestly beggars belief. It's not only they take away the incentives, but now, now they're adding in a fear of getting the vaccine because the vaccine could be dangerous and, and has caused six blood clotting <laughs> disorders so far. I mean, they're the, making it seem more dangerous than it is by a lot. <laughs> it's literally walking around and being worried about being struck by lightning. Like the, uh, that's, that's what, that's what's happening right now. It's, it's really crazy. I've started to see these bizarre social media confessions by fully vaccinated people like Joy Reid, who's one of the, the worst people in American media. <laughs> the MSNBC host, she did this Twitter thread about how she's been fully vaccinated. It's two weeks, but she's just not ready to step out in the world. She's still scared and afraid. And I'm like, you're really telling on yourself as an unhinged person detached from reality. It's not like you, a 40 something year old woman, were ever really at risk as far as anyone knows, uh, a particularly vulnerable risk. And you've now been fully vaccinated and you're basically dear diarying to the whole world that you're afraid to leave your couch still. Uh, something sick is going on in some people's heads if that's where they're at, because that's the opposite of how you should feel once you've been fully vaccinated with a vaccine that works, which this one, based on everything we have uh, data, sure seems like 95 plus percent effective. So I, this, there's just this cult of alarmism and despair uh, that really seems to be infecting a lot of people. Do you think that there's any motives behind any of the f driving the fear behind this vaccine? I mean, you can get 
we just got a little bit conspiracy theorist on an episode the other day because it's fun to do sometimes. But do you think that there's any just, you know, subconscious thing where if we if we end the pandemic, what about all these bills we need to get passed? What about all these powers that we have right now? Why? What's the incentive to end this pandemic? We get everything we want right now. No, I mean, it's not really conspiratorial when you're looking at what they're actually doing. So Biden's 1.9 trillion COVID bill, only 10% of the money went directly to combating COVID. 1% of the money went to vaccines. Most of the bill was just massive welfare state expansions, bailouts for blue states, and all sorts of big government wet dream wish list items. And so... I mean, obviously, it's the whole Rahm Emanuel, never let a crisis go to waste thing. They have been able to accomplish things like making massively and expanding the welfare state, $6 trillion of, of welfare spending uh, over the course of a year that they never would have in the dream have been able to do in, without the pandemic. There have been all sorts of government governors who've ha had emergency powers granted to them. Media, fear sells, baby. I'm a journalist. I know this. This is simply true. Uh, CNN doesn't want its ratings. Its ratings are already way down after Trump. But when the COVID pandemic ends, they're going to go down even further. There is a very strong incentive for people towards alarmism of all types. That's why even in like conservative talk radio, every election is the end of the world, the end of the American experiment. There are the left will destroy this country. And it's just the same thing all around. And the COVID pandemic is just a particularly acute example where when the crisis is allowed to end, so will many people's claim to big amounts of power. And so they're going to have a strong inherent bias subconscious. It's not like there's a, a, a cabal of people prolonging the pandemic that meet <laughs> in a dark room, but it's just this strong subconscious bias towards alarmism that brings us this kind of dysfunctional result. Uh, now, one thing I wanted to ask you about was, uh, and I think we probably agree on this, because when it comes to the idea of vaccine passports, get, getting on that, um, I tend to think that no one, first off, needs to be mandated to get the vaccine. I also don't think that businesses need to be required to make sure that people have gotten the vaccine. I don't like any type of mandatory uh, vaccination whatsoever. I think that there's a great I think there's a great free market uh, argument behind that, which is that if you mandate it, why would you ever make it better afterwards? If, if you're forced to get something, where's our where's our newer, better versions going to come from if uh, if everyone's been forced to get this one? But with the vaccine passports, um, you know, uh, the governor in Florida, Ron DeSantis, said that he was going to ban private businesses from acquiring that. And this is a very split issue amongst libertarians. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I got so much hate from conservatives and libertarians for my stance on this, which I just think is consistent. I don't think the government should be have any involvement in um, in vaccine passports creating or certifying or monitoring at all. I mean, the civil liberty concerns there are just endless and, and sky high. And now, so I just don't think it's necessary. People are taking this vaccine. It's a really good vaccine. You should be able to convince people without uh, making a, a scarlet V, right? <laughs> they, they have to wear on their shoulder. Um, but uh, the, uh, the flip side is, I think things like DeSantis's order, and this is what people got really mad about, it goes too far. If I have a small business and I want to say, unvaccinated people can't come on my property. Why shouldn't I be able to do that? Why should Governor DeSantis be able to override my rights like that? I, it's a little different with like big corporations because I do take the point that if, for example, masks, which I, I, I wore my mask, I'm not an anti-masker, but uh, whether you had a government mask mandate or all the big corporations just man made it mandatory Walmart, Olive Garden, Target, etc. The practical effect at a certain point becomes the same. And so I guess that's the concern that you have to ban it so it doesn't become a de facto mandate. But I do think, I mean, if if restaurants aren't required to have vaccine passports, but they are allowed to if they want to, 
Well, some restaurants will, some ones won't. If you don't want to, you, you patronize the ones that don't. In lots of ways, because I studied the economy, a lot of our markets are more competitive than you think. They really are. Uh, how many different coffee shops and gas stations and restaurants and fast food joints are there? There's a lot to choose from and people will have choice. So I don't think businesses should be requiring vaccination proof in most cases. It seems illogical. If I'm, again, if I'm a store owner and I'm vaccinated, it shouldn't matter whether you are as a customer, I'm safe. But I am not comfortable with the governor issuing this kind of invasive mandate of people's private property rights. I have some sympathy for the big corporation argument, but it applies to any private entity. And I mean, my house, my restaurant, that should be my domain to do with it what I want with very, very small exceptions. And this is a big one that I don't, I just think goes too far. I think where it gets muddy, there uh, uh, two things. One, we've reached this point where uh, corporations are deciding to do things. And essentially, the argument would be that the government is working through the private market. And and that even though something isn't mandatory or whatever it might be, that essentially the corporations are doing the bidding of the government without them having to pass a law to force them to do that. And I don't know where to I don't know where to fix that. I would align with you on that, that I still can't tell a private person that they can't require something for you to go onto their property. I don't have a law or anything that really fixes that other than trying to uh, continuing to try to reduce the size of the government that's the only thing i could i could respond with that well, would try also, and fix that there's also market competition so um it's kind of like um it's kind of like this if these big corp because i agree with you corporations are woke now and big business is not a friend to libertarians i i think big business is often into cronyism and corruption and shilling for big government and we could do a whole episode talking about how problematic that is. So I am not a big business bootlicker libertarian at all. But I do think that in the case of something like this, when there is unmet demand among enough consumers, a market satisfies that. So say that Target and Walmart and all the big stores implemented a passport, vaccine passport. If there's tens or hundreds of millions of Americans out there who want somewhere to shop that's not going to force them to, to show a vaccine passport, there's going to be a huge financial incentive for another company to defect and welcome them in and get all that money. And I'm pretty confident in the ability of businesses to go where the money is personally. I mean, that's that's how it works. And, and they're pretty good at that. That is kind of what they do. That's the That's their thing. Uh, yeah, and where I would where I would start to think uh, there was an issue is if the government does make it mandatory for a business to do that, or there are things on the bat financial penalties, say for companies that don't do it, or financial incentives for companies that do do it. There are ways they can make things not mandatory, but in a way mandatory. And and so what I've said on the whole thing is if the government is not involved with this passport at all. If there are no incentives in either direction from the government, there's no use of force in any direction from the government. If a private person wants to require me to show to show them something, then I'll choose whether or not I'm going to go in the in the establishment. That's Some people say that it's a violation of their privacy rights, like their private medical information. And I think that's wrong in the sense that you don't have a right to patronize someone else's business. Like they're not forcing you to show them their vaccine, your vaccination information. They're simply saying, in order to come inside my property, you must show it. That's not the same thing. Like you don't have a, a positive right to eat at Olive Garden. I, I totally, I totally agree. I made the, as much as I love breadsticks. <laughs> I made the argument uh, in our group that. If I wanted to start a restaurant and to enter the restaurant, you had to show me all of your health records. You had to print all of them out and show me everything. Show me every medication you're on. Show me everything you've ever been diagnosed with. And for you to come eat in this restaurant, you have to give me all of this information. I'm not forcing anyone to go into the restaurant. And if people freely, if they choose that this is what they want to do because I've got 
better breadsticks than the other no no surely (laughs) no one will want to go there but i i should still have the right to request that for them to come into the establishment and i'll quickly run i will quickly be run out of business it's it's not going that it's not going to work for me if that's what i'm doing yeah we also have to be able to distinguish between what businesses should have the legal right to do and what I think they should do. Mm Because those two things can't be the same thing if you're a libertarian. You can have opinions about things, but not want to force them with it. Because I'm like this. I'm kind of, I'm like a libertarian conservative in that a lot of things I think should be legal, I also think are bad. I think we should decriminalize drugs and sex work. I think both are, in most cases, immoral and wrong and bad for society. But there's a difference between saying my view should override your individual liberty. I don't think they should. That's what I think the essence of libertarianism is. It's not that you have to actively, because libertarians are often accused of this, right? Well, because we're supporting the baker's right to not bake the cake, that means we agree and like him and hate gay people. And that's not it at all. I mean, the same thing with this, just because I think a private business should have the legal right to require vaccination proof if they want, I still think it doesn't make any sense and it's dumb and they shouldn't do it. And we can hold two thoughts at once. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. Um, and so I think we shouldn't fall into that trap. Uh, we should be able to make that distinction. Now, what, um, if you don't mind me asking, what makes you a libertarian conservative? What would you say that throws the conservative word on there? Um, I guess I'm just somewhere in the middle of the two. I'm not, yeah, I, I don't know. So when I'm hanging out with libertarians, I feel like a conservative. When I'm hanging out with conservatives, <laughs> I feel like a libertarian. Uh, I guess the person who most closely embodies my political beliefs, though I would say a slightly more boomer, and I say this with love, version of them, <laughs> is Rand Paul. Um, I guess I'm just not as, I find libertarians, like true libertarian philosophy, is more anarchist than I am uh, in a number of ways. So but if you took it, libertarianism to its logical conclusion, it eventually, it, it has to lead to to anarchy, the true, you know, no government, if you took it to its logical conclusion. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm in effect very libertarian on most things because I want a very limited government, free market economies and constitutional protected liberties, uh, and then social libertarianism. But what I'm not though is fully open borders, defund the police, private. I mean, I, I support all sorts of criminal justice reform, but it's like, I do think the government should build roads and have police. And that that is actually libertarian in some schools of libertarian thought. But in practice, it seems like the other thing is abortion. I'm pro-life. And I think there's a role for the government in abortion, in my view. Because the same way murder should be illegal if you believe abortion is murder, you got to believe the state should be involved there, too. So I just find in a lot of ways I'm disconnected from true, true libertarianism. Um, but I would say that, that on almost every issue that I, I can think of, I do want to see the country move in a more libertarian direction. Do you think uh, my, big, my big issue with libertarians is it seems like I always, I always think libertarians are very all or nothing. And I think that's why we don't, we don't trend in a libertarian direction because there, there aren't any compromises. I'm very libertarian, but I would vote. I would vote for Rand Paul as many times as my state would allow me to send in a ballot f- to vote for Rand Paul <laughs> because I see him as a logical step towards the direction that I want to go. Uh, and I don't think I don't think libertarians think long term enough that we're going to need to step this down for 100 years. It's going to take some time. I also time. think um, like the word libertarian, especially with a capital L, has a lot of bad connotation to it. I, I mean... The LP, if the, maybe I would identify fully as a libertarian if the LP wasn't such a shit show. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we could um, talk. We could do a whole episode about that for sure. I'd, yeah. I, my card has been thrown in the fireplace in the in the last year, so it's it's back to small L for me. It was it was a big L for a bit. It's back to small L for me, for sure. Um, the other thing, a, a new news piece that that's just happening now. What's going on with this idea of packing the Supreme Court? 
Fill me in on this. Oh, God, what a headache this is. But I mean, a bunch of top Democrats. You have Ed Markey, the senator from my home state of Massachusetts, Taxachusetts, the People's Republic <laughs> of Massachusetts, uh, teaming up with Jerry Nadler, the, the one of the top Democrats in the House from New York. They want to pack the Supreme Court. They're introducing legislation to add four new justices, uh, which, hmm, that's an interesting number, four. I wonder why, because that's just enough that would give the Democratic appointees a majority. Uh, so all of a sudden, it would be seven to uh, six, I believe. Yeah, seven to six from, from its current three to six composition. Uh, and, and it's interesting because one thing to be clear about is what Democrats are proposing is not unconstitutional. I was surprised to learn this when I first started studying this issue and reporting on it, but the Constitution actually does not specify how many judges the court must have. Uh, it doesn't say nine, but it's been nine since the mid uh, 19th century, right? It's been nine for a long time. FDR was the last one who tried to expand the court. And basically what he did was pass a bunch of unconstitutional New Deal programs, massive welfare state, government overreach. Supreme Court said, you can't do that. And then he said, oh, well, screw you. I'm just going to pack the court by adding justices that like me and agree with me to rubber stamp my agenda. And then what he did is he, he, he pushed the, the court packing proposal so much that the Supreme Court out of fear started allowing his programs. And so that kind of shows you why court packing, while not technically unconstitutional, is a really authoritarian and disturbing kind of attack on the system that protects our liberty. Why do you think the the founders, it seems like they did a really good job for seeing a lot of problems that would have that would have came up. It's really interesting to me that they didn't lay out exactly how many justices there needed to be. Any any thoughts on why they left that wide open? Yeah, there are a couple of reasons that might be. One is that the founders didn't envision the Supreme Court being nearly as important as it is. The idea of judicial review, that, that, that the Supreme Court uh, gets to decide what's constitutional and has final say on all that, is actually not something the founders originally had in the Constitution explicitly. They had it in mind for a smaller role than it has come to have in our system, uh, for better or for worse. And the other thing is that like, if you, they didn't ever imagine that it would become so political a body. And logistically speaking, the idea of expanding or decreasing the number of justices is not necessarily a good or bad thing, right? For example, the country has gotten bigger. <laughs> there are a lot more cases. There are a lot more circuits and districts to cover. So it, the idea that maybe we should have 15 Supreme Court justices instead, right, to adjust with the times because the Supreme Court has been able to take a smaller and smaller percentage of the cases that are submitted for review every year, um, isn't a crazy idea. There's nothing wrong with that idea at all. What's wrong is the inherent political way that they're trying to do this. And that if we're being honest, it only ever would be done in a political way, at least the way our politics is now. So I support, you know, he's kind of a doofus, but he's right about this. Ted Cruz has an amendment that would set the amount of Supreme Court justices at nine. And I think we, we need something like that, that would just take this off the table because what would happen is if Democrats, this bill will not pass in this Congress. There's not enough votes for it. But say that it did. The Democrats would add four justices. They'd have their seven, six. And then the uh, Houses of Congress would flip totally in 2022. The White House would flip red in 2024. And the Republicans would go and add four seats, five seats. They'd one up the Democrats. And then we'd go back and forth and back and forth. And pretty soon you'd have 200 seats on the Supreme Court. They'd all be super partisan appointees, and it would become a total joke of an institution unable to safeguard our liberties and our rights. And that's the real problem is you're opening this Pandora's box by, by changing the number of justices that's just going to keep going and keep going and erode the Supreme Court as we know it. And the Supreme Court is so important for limiting what government can do. Uh, otherwise, you're just trusting them to follow their own restraints set in the constitution of their own goodwill. And that's just naive to say the very least. It's really, it's really interesting that people can't think far enough into the future to understand why this would be a bad idea. Like if you just took Ed Markey and just said, Hey man, okay. So what happens 
when it's all Republican majority everywhere? Like, what happens then? Are you still okay with packing the Supreme Court? Most people would probably say no. So their argument, though, would be that Republicans have already packed the Supreme Court (laughs) by appointing Brett Kavanaugh and by stealing the seat for Neil Gorsuch. And so they would say, yeah, that's bad, but they started it. And what are we going to do? Just sit out and let them do it? No, we got to fight back. And I just think it's dishonest. I think it's categorically different. Exploiting the normal system uh, in a partisan way to fight to have more of your justices confirmed that you want is what Republicans have done. I do think they're hypocritical about it, no doubt, right? They're hypocritical, for example, not voting on Merrick Garland under Obama, but you then in the last year, but then voting on ACB in the last year. It's, yeah, newsflash, politicians are hypocrites, but it's all within the normal realm of the system. It doesn't justify this drastic escalation and attack, but that is what they would say. That's how they would justify it. Well, is it a given that the vote would have gone through for Merrick Garland? I mean, is that is it just they would have had to confirm him if they would have had the vote? Is no, I think they should have allowed a vote and then just voted him down yeah. if they don't want to. Then, like, like that's the I thing I'm missing that. is is everyone's like, oh, they didn't confirm Garland. They didn't have a vote. Well, what if they didn't confirm him in the first place? Like they did have they did have a vote, but they didn't confirm him. Is the they whole should, well, thing over whether or not they doing vote? their job as normal? Yeah. So that's what they. Should. But I think the thing is though that Garland was a kind of moderate centrist Democrat pick, and so Mitch McConnell, if he had allowed the vote, there probably would have been enough Republicans that did vote for him for it to pass, and that's why he chose not to allow the vote. Yeah. Now, one thing I want to ask was on the power overall of the Supreme Court. And I think that's I think that's very true. That's why the founders didn't write that in. But we do not have a Supreme Court like what they envisioned really at all. We think that there is a law that the Supreme Court, if they decide that something is unconstitutional, well, then it's no longer a law. It's gone at that point. Like they've got their own SWAT team or their own military or something like that that's going to come down and and end this law. And that's not exactly what they were meant to do, right? Yeah, the the founders didn't. It's kind of disputed. um, But my understanding is that the founders didn't necessarily all think that's the role the court would take. Um, They they but it is the role it has taken in effect for hundreds of years now. So um, just in practice, and I think honestly, they were wrong about that. The founders were in many ways brilliant in terms of separating the powers, but I think they should have had the the Supreme Court more as explicitly as a referee and then more explicitly defined and limited because unfortunately, the checks and balances, well, the checks on the Supreme Court are too strong in that the Supreme Court actually has no enforcement mechanism. So one of the reasons that um, the Supreme Court's politics and policy are so fragile is that if it, the only reason that that um, the Supreme Court is legitimate is because when it issues an order, people follow it. The government follows it, but they, they don't have to. The, the Supreme Court can't force the president to listen when he strikes down a law, when they strike down a law that he that he's trying to pass or push through or an executive order. The only reason he's in effect forced to is because the public overwhelmingly views the Supreme Court as legitimate. So the problem that this creates is that because there's no enforcement mechanism other than its legitimacy in public opinion, is then the Supreme Court is very vulnerable to its legitimacy being undermined. And then it just the whole system could could collapse under that weight if that was undermined. And that's what something like court packing would do. Just all it would take is one back and forth of each side packing the court before the legitimacy among the public for viewing the Supreme Court goes from 90 plus percent to whatever percent of the party uh, that's in control of it supports it. What what I think a good question to ask would be, what are they worried about the court striking down? Like what is it that they when they're looking at the long term goals right now? Why is it important that we get this in place that we know the Supreme Court is going to be in line with whatever laws that we pass? And I think that's well, I think a good question to there. ask. <laughs> I mean, they want gun control that's explicitly banning guns, right? Like banning yeah. assault weapons, so called. That's that's a made up term, but like banning <laughs> AR fifteens. 
the Supreme Court precedent explicitly says you have a right to bear arms and you have a right to uh, weapons in common use. Like they know the things they want to achieve are not going to survive constitutional scrutiny under a textualist or originalist, which I think are the legitimate ways to look at the Constitution um, in a 6-3 court or really a 5-4 court. But they know it's just not going to last or go anywhere, many of the things they want to do. And so rather than adjust their plans so that they abide with the plain meaning of the Constitution, (laughs) they want to change the referees and take control of them. A couple things from listeners here. One, Todd said that the uh, Supreme Court justices used to be pulled from each federal judicial district. Um, he said you could expand the cover of the 11 districts, and but one judge would have to come from each, uh, which is an interesting idea. I don't actually know how they used to do it. I get Todd. Todd's pretty good on that stuff, so <laughs> I trust him on that. So there's an idea. And then uh, um, someone else was just saying that people are worried that the court's going to overrule or overturn Roe versus Wade. Has there been a lot of talk about the court actually doing that? Or is that more the media and the Twitter sphere getting people drummed up right. about that? People are very worried about that. But when I actually talk to and listen to constitutional lawyers, they're not worried about that. First of all, my view is that it should be overturned. And here's what it, people don't understand what overturning Roe v. Wade would mean. All it would mean is that every state can make their own abortion laws. It wouldn't ban abortion nationwide. It would simply allow the democratic process at the federalist state level to play out. California can have its abortions. Texas can ban them. That's what I think the correct solution is personally. But just to put this in context, really, there's like out of the six conservative Supreme Court justices at the moment, only one or two have strongly indicated that they would overturn Roe v. Wade. Justice Thomas is the only for sure 100% he would do it based on his writings. The others, it's all up in the air and they really haven't shown any desire to. Uh, They don't take a lot of cases that would be ripe for overturning it. Really, the question is more, will they chip away at it? They might allow a more wide latitude for abortion restrictions under the Roe framework. But the idea of a total repeal of Roe v. Wade is really not on the realistic agenda or mindset of the conservative legal movement or the conservative justices in power right now. Um, So just a a couple things here. Someone in the group wants to know what your hot food take is. Oh, I have so many. That's the thing. That's what we do at my podcast at the end. I heard that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We ask everybody for their hot food takes. So I have so, so many. I think skim milk is the best milk. Uh, I think that American cheese is the best cheese. I love my country and I'm a patriot and I like (laughs) real dairy products uh, that that don't go bad. Um, (laughs) And I I, there's just oh, there's there's so many. I don't even know where to begin with. I didn't I didn't know I was going to get off. I I like uh, steak well done with ketchup. My boyfriend doesn't let me put ketchup on it when he cooks it, but I, <laughs> I, I do it when he's not around. Yeah, I mean, um, that's, you're saying so many bad things about the person who cooked the steak when you do that. You know, you got <laughs> to know that. You got to know that. So I have lots of hot food takes. That's what I'm known for. And then I love hearing food takes from like on, on my podcast. We've had, I mean, some big names, right? Like, and it's kind of funny to ask Rand Paul what his weirdest or most controversial food take is. He, the guy hates mayonnaise despises mayonnaise, gets mad when his wife puts mayonnaise in food and doesn't tell him. He's just going off about mayonnaise on my (laughs) podcast for like two minutes and I'm like cracking up. So it's just a fun, lighthearted thing we do on my podcast that, uh, and I do on my Twitter feed too. How's the, uh, how's the podcast been going? Seeing all the the good numbers, getting a lot of good guests, all that. Yeah, it is growing. Uh, You know, it's tough. It's just, it it was flat for a while, but it's looking up. uh, It's going up again. Um, And I'm excited about the guests that that I've I've been having and have been having. Um, Yeah, I I guess where I want to go with it long term remains to be seen. But for now, I'm just having conversations with interesting people kind of zoomed out. You know, my day job where, where I'm racing to write about the headlines of that day. But the conversation is more about big picture issues. Uh, and, and themes and ideas. So I find that stuff kind of more interesting. And the podcast is a great venue 
to do that in a lighthearted setting with important politicians and journalists and, and thinkers and all the people I've kind of met in my uh, journalistic career so far. Now, in the last uh, couple months, I feel like I've seen you everywhere. I saw you testify in front of Congress. Is that right? I saw you, I see you on the news quite often. What's that been like? Has this just been like a, a wild ride taken off all of a sudden? Well, you know, it's funny. I had this stinking feeling that when Joe Biden was elected president, all of a sudden there'd be more demand for free market fiscal conservative message and writing and content and arguments. And you know that how funny it is how that worked out. Because I was writing these same things, to be clear, during the Trump years. I wrote about the debt. I wrote about <laughs> government. I wrote about spending. And I, listen, I did some media appearances and got good traffic. And, and I wrote about other things. And I did well. But I'm saying, I haven't changed. They've changed. Yeah. But all of a sudden, in the last few months, you know, the Fox and Friends invites have come into the inbox the Fox business primetime requests. The uh, I was invited to testify by actually Senator Paul, and he's been consistent on this, to be clear, all of this, uh, to, about the dangers of lockdowns and second order effects and mental health and suicides. And that was really surreal and really an honor to do that. Uh, the, the video of my testimony, my opening statement is on my YouTube page if people want to look it up. But um, yeah, it's been a bit of a wild ride. And I guess the cynic in me is like, well, it's kind of stinks that they're only interested in this when a Democrat's president, but I guess it's better than them never being interested. So I'll take it. And anything I can do to, you know, promote the ideas of, of free market economics and limited government, uh, I will take it. Just to get your thoughts on that real quick, because we had, while Obama was president, we had this thing called the Tea Party that was a really big deal. And then it seemed, and people were very worried about the spending coming out of the government, very worried about the debt. And then it seems like it just kind of went away. And then I assume a lot of those feelings are coming back right now. I really wish that that would just remain a consistent thing at all times. Right. I will say this. The thing we got out of the Tea Party was people like Thomas Massey and Rand Paul and Justin Amash elected to office. And while the kind of popular masses moved on, they stayed consistent and were pushing those ideas and those policies the whole time. So if we do have a revival of the Tea Party sentiment and we get some more good people in power, I would still view that as a positive development, even if it is kind of a fair weather thing, if it helps us get some principled people into positions of power. I'll take it. I would love a Tea Party 2.0, but I agree with you. I would like one that is really rooted in the beliefs and not just rooted in anti-democratism. Uh, I completely agree. Man, I, I just want to stress everyone listening, go listen to Brad's podcast, Breaking Boundaries. I'll put a link in the show notes. I'll put a link to it. You wrote a couple stories about the court packing, about the vaccine. I'll make sure that those are in the show notes as well. And I might as well throw in that YouTube video of you doing uh, the thing in front of Congress too, because that was that was really good as well. So, man, I really appreciate your time today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. I love this show. I love Dumb Bleep Friday, so I'll be <laughs> tuning in tomorrow too. I got We have such a hard time trying to make sure that every day isn't Dumb Bleep, but you really have to stay off of Twitter to not try and do dumb bleep every single oh, day. Oh, I'll send you some DMs for dumb bleep from this week. There was a lot of dumb bleep. Uh, that's supposed to be our day where we just get to go off and complain about everything. And all the other days are supposed to be where we're like, oh, this is how we fix these problems. And here are the principles. And let's all be calm and figure out how to work with everyone. And then Friday, we're, we just blow off all the steam. And there's been a lot of extra steam to, to blow off here for a while. I can't blame you. I can't blame you. <laughs> All right, man. Well, I really appreciate it. Thanks.